Hi, this is Zane Lowe. Thanks for checking out a brand new episode of Songs for Life. 10 songs that soundtrack key moments in your life. I couldn't do it, but somehow Sofia Coppola has. She is our guest on this episode. She's a screenwriter, a director with an exceptionally famous name, synonymous with Hollywood. So naturally, she grew up on film sets, classic movies like The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. Kind of makes sense that it's going to catch. There's going to be some inspiration that leads her on a certain path, but it's not just about film. She had an early career in fashion, She tried acting, and she continues to combine her love of aesthetics, fashion, and music to create a very unique visual style. Her breakthrough, The Virgin Suicides, put that on full display, but it was lost in translation, starring Bill Murray and a star turn from Scarlett Johansson, that she wrote and directed and brought her the kind of global recognition that sets you on your path. She got an Oscar for Best Screenplay, and she didn't waste it. She's gone on to create a really amazing body of work, which leads us to this moment right here, where she's reunited with Bill Murray on a brand new film called On the Rocks. You can watch Watch it now on Apple TV+. Plus. So that's the build-up. This is the show. Myself and Sofia Coppola, 10 songs, key moments in life, songs for life, right here on Apple Podcasts. To hear all the songs in this episode, search for the playlist Songs for Life on Apple Music. Sofia Coppola, it's great to meet you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Songs for Life. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Nice to meet you. We're going to start at a point with a project and a film that I think a lot of people really do associate you with. Uh, The movie Lost in Translation was such a smash hit. Not only was it big critically, but it was a really important film too for its style, its pace, the music you used in it all came together. It was very unique. So rather than start chronologically, I thought it would be a fun place to start there. How fun was it being reunited with Bill Murray again so many years after Lost in Translation on the new film? It's the best. It's always the best when Bill shows up. It's especially on set, it's so fun because it's just the he brings an energy and, and magic to things and you never know what he's gonna do. So it's it's never a dull moment. But I, I love working with him and I just feel like it's um so lucky to be able to to mm. capture him on film because he um he's so one of a kind. Was it difficult to convince him to do Lost in Translation in the first place? Because he's notoriously deliberate with what he does and to some degree obtuse too. Like he'll show up in strange places that no one would expect and it seems to be part of the whole thing. Yes, he's definitely a man of mystery and he still is. But the first time, I I spent a year trying to track him down to do Lost in Translation and I went to Japan, I went to Tokyo and started, started the film in the hopes that he would show up, but I didn't know for sure if he was. So I was so relieved when... He arrived, and and then um, there was no call be- sheet saying what time he arrived at the airport or anything of that nature. It was just kind of a hope. No, he's very mysterious. He didn't want to know. Like he probably booked his own travel, and we never had a contract signed. And I was there spending money, had a whole crew, and it was terrifying. With you know, but I knew deep down, or I hoped that he would show up, and um, and it was worth the risk. And, and luckily, he did. But what it was, was your feeling like when he showed up in you know Tokyo. the location for the first time? Yeah. I mean, just seeing him in the kimono sitting on the bed at the Park Hyatt in Tokyo, it was like, I've had that in my mind for for so long. And then to see him actually there, um, I couldn't believe it. And we were all turned around and filming at night and jet lagged. So the whole thing was kind of a dreamy uh, haze anyway. But I think when we, we went to karaoke before filming and drinking sake and ha- hearing Bill sing karaoke was definitely a highlight, a fantasy moment. Do you remember what he's saying? Oh, I don't remember what songs we did, but then in the movie, I, I had to request um, more than this because one of my favorite songs and and I wanted to have mm. his romantic side. Yeah, it's one of the most iconic 
kind of karaoke scenes, mm-hmm. of which there are actually quite a few. If you stack them up, oh, and I'm sure there are more than that. enough <laughs> websites yeah, that are dedicated just to famous karaoke scenes. But that's that's got to oh, be yeah. the number one. Just the <laughs> idea of Bill Murray dedicating himself to a song that it, by its very nature is so hopelessly romantic and so 80s. Yeah. Um, how do you come to a conclusion out of all the songs that you love that that's going to be the one that plays such a pivotal role in the overall visual audio experience? Oh, I don't know. I think you just you just go with what you would want to see and what would be an ultimate fantasy. And I've always loved Brian Ferry and Roxy Music, and it just seemed to fit the mood of 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 him in that moment because the energy is really more hyper and they're having fun, and then it shifts to this kind of um, just more mellow, romantic tone shift. But I think it, you just I don't know. I always just go with my instinct mm. and what I would like to hear, and it seemed to fit the mood. And who wouldn't want Bill Murray to croon that to you in, in a, <laughs> in a sake neon blur? talking to Sophia Coppola right now, Songs for Life, that song playing such an important role in the way that music and, and film come together throughout your career, key scene. Uh, what, before we move on, what is your default karaoke song of choice, uh, dependent uh, on the amount of alcohol you have in your system <laughs> and the time of the night? It's Cherry Bomb, Runaways. That's a great one. I can't sing, but I can I can shout Hello, if I have enough sake. <laughs> Hello, mom. <laughs> it's also one of the great Brad anthems of all time. Yes. <laughs> I feel like that, uh, and I'm not necessarily directing this in your direction. I'm not necessarily leveraging this at you, but I feel like anyone who gets up and decides to sing that has some kind of unresolved family Give issues. me enough sake and I'll sing cherry bomb. You need to exercise in some way, shape, or form, and the only way you can do it is to be a runaway yeah. for three minutes, you know? Yeah. Well, everyone's got a rebellious side, hopefully. You'd hope so, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, that brings us neatly. That idea brings us uh, really, really appropriately to um, your early life. Life. What's your earliest memory of music? Let's just start right at the beginning. What's the first memory you have as a child of, of listening to music or connecting with your soul? Oh, wow. Um, I was thinking my dad used to blast opera really loud. And I remember being in the Philippines when he was shooting Apocalypse Now and the rain and the storm and opera blasting and it being very dramatic. Um, and <laughs> borderline anxiety inducing for a child <laughs> to have opera flying no. at you during those situations. I, I, I like it. There's something kind of comforting and feels, yeah, connects me to my childhood. But um, yeah, my parents didn't play a lot of music at home. But whenever I hear um, Jimmy Cliff, The Harder They Come, that always reminds me of being a little kid because they played that at home. It's so great that Jimmy Cliff does because that song is such, and it's it's an inherent value rebel music. And as a child, you just connect it to the groove and the beat and the bop. But somewhere, I love the idea of subliminally, the idea of resistance being planted in your head by Jimmy Cliff. And I always remember that uh, you can get it if you really want. Like that stayed in my mind my whole life, I think, <laughs> from that album. Yeah. You can get it if you really Try, try, try and try. 
What are some of the sort of more overarching memories you have of growing up around Hollywood and being, I guess, raised at least on the outskirts of the business? Yeah, I, my parents um, moved to Northern California, so I grew up in the country, Napa Valley, so I wasn't really growing up in Hollywood. But but we would go to, you know, they took us to the Cannes Film Festival and different trips, and so we kind of dipped in and out and saw some of that. But it, but it wasn't like probably those kids that grew up in Hollywood around that all the mm. time. My mom sheltered us from that. But it was always fun to go into these other worlds that were so unlike regular life. You know, even in, in a more isolated situation like that, where you can kind of grow up in quote unquote more normal environment than perhaps being in Los Angeles or in Hollywood, um, you know, I, I think that whenever you have parents who are incredibly passionate about what they do and are dedicated to their own life's work as well as the work of raising children and the love of a family, there is some kind of sharing. There is some kind of compromise that has to be made. And I wonder whether or not looking back on it, you maybe felt like you did have to share your, your parents to some degree with their passions or with their commitment to their craft. Oh, yeah, I never thought of it like that, but I, I appreciate that my dad always wanted us to be on set. We always went and lived on locations, so we lived in all these different places, but really spent so much time on set. So, you know, I learned all about it and got to watch them working without even realizing that that was what was going mm. on. So it was cool, and they always took us everywhere with them. I mean, I think about now, you like get a babysitter if you go to a nightclub or something, and they they, they took us everywhere. And my dad the other day said, I remember you were sitting on Andy Warhol's lap talking to him. What were you guys talking about? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I was like, you know, 12 or something. And I just was interested in him. Or whatever. So that there were moments where we were around this, you know, the grown-up world where you don't usually bring kids. And I thought it was cool because we grew up kind of seeing a lot. And then on the other side, we had, uh, you know, normal time too without in the country. Yeah. You know, a big part of that, and we're going to get to the new show very soon and talk about On the Rocks, but, you know, at the core of that is the relationship between a daughter and her father. And I actually read a review recently that sort of said that that's not actually the most common uh, narrative, you know, when it comes to making films and it's it's unique. And, you know, I, I wonder whether or not making films, because family has always played a fairly significant role in, in, in your films, the dynamic of family. Yeah. Um, we've seen it before in different ways. And I wonder whether there's been a, an, an element of, of self-discovery through the films that you make and whether you're able to kind of learn more about yourself and through your relationships with your family through the films you make. Yeah, I definitely think I, you make films, or I do, about things that are you're trying to work through or understand. So I always feel like they served a purpose to have some kind of understanding. And um, and this one, yeah, it's definitely about that, how you're, you know, after having kids, looking at your parents and how your relationships with a father can affect the person you end up with, you know, as your partner and romantically. Mm. And, then, and then they're the father of your kids. And so looking at all that, I always think... Um, it's a way to, yeah, to look at that and to explore and hopefully understand something. The idea of playing Isn't She Lovely right now, which is one of those sort of, uh, <laughs> I don't know really to some degree whether it is, it is sort of linear and literal as this, but it has become a father-daughter anthem for many, many years because of the, the way it's just been appropriated like all great songs. What's the reason we're playing the Stevie Wonder classic? Yeah, I just remember um, as, a, as a little kid, my dad, explaining the song to me and explaining that he was blind and it was about his daughter. And so I just always remember that that story. And whenever I hear it, it reminds me of being a little kid and my dad uh, telling me about Stevie Wonder meeting his daughter.
You know, you've said that, you know, your upbringing was pretty unconventional um, and you talked a little bit about Napa before, but we didn't really discuss what it was like being at school and, and how it was fitting into um, a community and a convention based around learning and based around structure um, when the rest mm-hmm. of your life, as you've, as you've established, doesn't really have that. Did you really embrace that? Was that something you, that you really yearned for? Did you find it hard to kind of move in a matrix after you've been sort of freewheeling it all over the world doing cool things? Yeah, I didn't like um, rules very much. And yeah, and there's a lot of cutting school and driving around and listening to music. So I, w- I wasn't a very good student and it was kind of hard for me to go into regular structure, but also because I was always switching schools and I didn't really learn math. So I, I didn't really know what was going on anyway, but um, I thought it was fun to see friends. But then, yeah, I wanted to break the rules of the structure. So you weren't a very good student, but were you a very good rebel? Were you good at it? Were you good at resistance? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I wasn't an extreme one, but I, I definitely liked to do what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, there was always a creativity in getting out of things, I guess, you know, writing fake <laughs> notes and getting out of school. And I, I started making little short films to get out of writing reports. That's probably the beginning of my film career. Cause did it work? That, Can you uh, do that? Yeah, yeah. I did, a, I did like a, a little animation of, about George Washington instead of having to write a report. So mm-hmm. I did it a few times just to get out of writing it. That's yeah. not. In Songs for Life, in the, in the previous playlist shows that I've been involved in, Prince is probably the most common <laughs> selection. Yeah. And in this particular show, what always seems to be attached to a Prince selection is some kind of revelation, some mind-bending or mind-opening <laughs> experience that Prince has been, has been able to unlock a door in the psyche to make you realize like, wow, there's more to life. Um, Definitely. You've, you've picked one of my favorite songs, Take Me With You by Prince. And I wonder <laughs> if I'm on the right track here, whether this song kind of takes you back to a moment when you realize that, that, that everything had changed. Definitely. Prince just has that effect. But I remember seeing Purple Rain at our local movie theater when I was like 12 years old and it just, it like blew my mind. It was probably a sexual awakening. I just like thought, oh, there's cool grownups and romantic, he was, you know, life. And this, you know, I just wanted to be on the back of the motorcycle riding around with Prince. And it just, um, I think I, you know, saw it a bunch of times and it just, you know, probably like everyone, it just made a huge impact on me. Me with you by Prince and uh, a, a beautiful selection on Songs for Life with Sofia Coppola. Um, you know, any mini money Moen Prince is, is, you know, his his music is just start to finish so remarkable. You've had such a you know successful career in film, writing, screenwriting, directing, and and being involved in almost every facet of it. But you know, it wasn't necessarily the obvious path as a kid. I think most people who are raised in film probably think they should act or move into a space that's in front of the camera. It didn't seem like that was necessarily what you wanted to do though. I mean, you you checked out of it pretty quick. Yeah, I never thought I would go into film just because it seemed probably too obvious. I Ever since I was a little kid, I loved fashion and I interned at Chanel when I was a teenager. And, um, mm. and I always thought I would be like a magazine editor or work in fashion. And actually fashion photography got me interested in photography, which led me to film. But I, I once I made a short film, it I realized how I knew how to do it. And I just I probably just avoided it because it seemed too obvious because everyone in my family yeah, does yeah. film. 
So I tried to do something different, but came back to the family business. But you've also remained really engaged and really interested in fashion. And in fact, I would say, you know, a majority of your films seem very lean into that space in a big way. Costume design, the art direction of films, it feels very much like you're pulling those two worlds together. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, it definitely influences my visual style. And I don't know, just like when I did Marie Antoinette, I had Odile Gilbert, who's a fashion hair person who worked with Galliano a lot, and she helped do the the hair so that it had connected with New Romantic period. And like, so you can draw on these worlds and references. A lot of references come from that when looking at the photography and, and stuff. And did you get a lot of inspiration and fashion from music as well? Because in the next band we're going to play, The Clash, um, it's actually one of the most overlooked aspects of, of what they achieved was to be so strikingly visual. You know, a lot of people refer to their cross-genre hopping and what they did within music and how they, you know, they were such a, you know, a broad creative experience. But they were fashion forward, The Clash, no question about it. They looked cool. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> no, they definitely, yeah, they were so cute. Yeah, I feel lucky to have an a older brother who was into good music and exposed me to things. And so thanks to Roman, I love The Clash and Elvis Costello and, and, and the music of that time as, from being what, a kid. What sort of role have they played for you? You talked a little bit about them being cute. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> One of the coolest looking bands of all time. Put the three of those guys up front of anybody at their, at their peak. Yeah. And, um, you know, everyone's got their favorite. They were kind of a weird, edgy, rebellious Beatles almost in a strange way, I felt. Oh, that's funny. I just, yeah, they were always my favorite. I just remember, you know, being 16 and driving around and cutting class from school and driving around St. Helena, listening to The Clash and that song in particular. So I just remember, I think as a teenager, you just drive aimlessly and listen to music. And um, I have lots of memories of that and, and playing songs over and over again because you love them. There was one moment where I I pulled up on our property and there's there's a mixed studio and they were Alex Cox was mixing that movie Walker and I, I I stopped my car and I was blasting the clash and I looked up and Joe Strummer was standing there and I was so mortified and like I couldn't believe that I was seeing and so starstruck at the same time and I was like I had to turn it off but like you know, I'm you know in the middle of the country in the middle of nowhere and Joe Strummer was standing there um and I'd like I had a convertible blasting the clash um so I'll, I'll never forget that moment and then we were just geeked out about Joe Strummer being there and like being kind of groupies hanging around the mix studio. So I was, yeah. So, but he, Joe Strummer, I always had a crush on Joe Strummer. He was my favorite. Do you think he acknowledged that you were playing the clash? I mean, did he hear you playing the clash? I, I feel like he kind of just gave me a look, but, and maybe laughed or something, but I, I, I don't know. I was so starstruck and embarrassed. <laughs> I lost in the supermarket. I no longer shop happily. We are going through, you know, a really brilliantly selected playlist of music, some of my favorite songs, so I'm really enjoying talking about them. Um, we talked a little bit about your desire to, to move into fashion to some degree in order to forge your own path and find your own voice. Um, but you did find yourself onto the screen at a young age. What was the sort of impetus behind doing that? Was it an experiment? Were you encouraged to act in the few films that you ended up sort of taking part in? You know, I would just, as a kid, I would just be on set and my dad would put me in as, like a, as an extra just to have a a record of me at different ages. And then on Godfather 3, when 
the actress dropped out. I was in college and I was visiting and I didn't want to go back to college. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try it, but more to get out of school. And also because it's always fun to be on set. And, and I thought, oh, you know, I, I wanted to try everything because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I wasn't really thinking about how it would be on view for the world, but I, I was up for, you know, try, I've always been on set and it's fun and I've seen actors. So I thought, oh, I'll try that. And, um, yeah, I didn't feel like it was not for me. I pref- much prefer being behind the camera. And also I don't like to be mm. told, told what to do. And then, you know, to be 18 and have your dad directing <laughs> you and telling you what to do um, was awkward. But uh, it was a good experiment. I learned a lot for directing and, and just to know what it's like to, for an actor, to how vulnerable that is. I mean, there's a couple of things there that jump out for me. Number one is the idea that this film, which is the third of a trilogy of films that have been seen by millions and millions of people and are some of the most iconic moments in in film history, um, that you were willing to take on the role to get out of school is remarkably (laughs) nonchalant. (laughs) I know. It's terrible because I know people that those movies are so important to people. And of course, I think they're great films. But I grew up with those movies, so I never really thought much about them until seeing them as an adult and being so impressed. But Yeah, what an awkward 10, 15 years of not being able to appreciate what the rest of the world can appreciate in that regard because yeah. to you, it was a day at the office at your dad's work. Those aren't his favorite movies. He's he's always kind of like, uh, doesn't want to be known as just the mafia guy. And like, wherever we go into restaurants, right. they'll play the Godfather theme song. And like, you know, it wasn't... <laughs> but then, you know, seeing them as an, as an adult, you know, it, they're so impressive made but but it growing up it wasn't something that he talked about with you know reverence so yes that's my my uh, <laughs> how I got to be in that movie I just love the idea of your dad trying to direct you in front of everybody and you just kind of turned into his 18 year old daughter where it's just like dude like Ugh, like I'm a worst. teenager like like it's like it's like all of a sudden it just becomes the family home I know it's probably so annoying for him, but um, yeah. And then I had to like kiss Andy Garcia in front of my dad. The whole thing was uncomfortable, but it was yeah. a, a unique experience. It was fun to be in Italy, <laughs> and I don't mean to sound yeah, nonchalant yeah. about the Godfather films. Oh, but I, you did, I, I have, and I loved it every second. <laughs> okay. I have a lot of respect for the <laughs> filmmaking, of course. We're about to play Sister Sledge. Wow, Sophia, another banger. This is dance floor banger. This is this is the cool wedding song, by the way. I mean, if there's a list of songs that you play at a wedding, this is the one that you pull out that has their heads nodding. They're like, all right, cool. I might oh, yeah. even dance to this one. <laughs> it's just so incredibly funky. The vocal performance is so flawless and the production is so incredible. Why is this on your playlist today? Oh, I love this song. It always makes me happy. And it reminds me of a, one of my happiest memories of being... 18, I just graduated from high school and I was working on, um, I had like my first real job on this low budget movie, working with friends in the costume department. And I was driving in a convertible over the Bay Bridge, you know, our hair blowing in the wind. And just that, that moment of being with friends and having no real responsibilities and kind of out on your own for the first time and first job and on a super low budget movie. And so it just always reminds me of a carefree moment. I'm thinking of you. That's a Stone Cold Disco classic, right? Sister Sledge, thinking of you. You said that song reminds you of your first steps working in film. And I want us to move forward now into your first major success as a screenwriter and director. 
Virgin Suicides was a huge, a huge step for you. And I would imagine to some degree you consider that to be your first major kind of significant step in the direction that you've continued to go on today. To begin with, you know, looking back at that experience now and the kind of person you were, what are the thoughts that spring to mind when you think of Virgin Suicides as an experience of making it? Yeah, that was my that was my first film and I I loved that book and and I always credit that book as making me a filmmaker because I would have never had the courage to make a movie but I I love that book so much that I wanted to protect it and Thurston Moore told me about that book. I was friendly with Kim and Thurston and um he told me about the book and then wanting to protect it I went to the producers and and said, you know, will you give me a shot because I had an idea of I started writing a script without having the rights to it and um so yeah, that was a big risk. I think anything you do that mm. you, you know, when you take a risk and you're not sure you know how to do it and you survive, it gives it gives you a boost. And it really made me realize that um, that I I did really connect with filmmaking. Yeah, I think back to that time when uh, you were probably given that book, and it was such an exciting time for music. Yeah, especially if you were a fan of what was going on and around Sonic Youth. And I felt like they were always really the kind of central core of something special. Definitely. And many acts danced around them. Yeah. How did you sort of get to know Thurston and Kim? And I sort of feel like at that time you were probably having similar experiences because you were friends with them and it just felt like music was at the core of, of culture in a big, big way, in a different way. It still is, but in a different way. Yeah, I remember it was an exciting time. I moved from Northern California down to LA to go to CalArts and it was the early nineties. And, um, and I'd always been into seeing bands like uh, up North we would in high school, we would drive to San Francisco and see, it was all those kind of sub pop bands and see meat puppets and fire hose and all that. And then in LA, I just remember that a friend of theirs saying, talking about Nirvana, Nirvana was opening for Sonic Youth and they said, Oh, this band's going to be bigger than Guns N' Roses. And we were like, no way. What do you, you that's crazy. (laughs) It was like at that moment where you just couldn't imagine it from metal was switching and, and yeah, and I remember they were on tour opening for, I don't even remember how I met Kim and Thurston. My boyfriend was Spike Jones at the time and we were all in that, in the, in that circle, but I don't, I don't know how mm. I met Kim, but I, I've stayed, um, you know, stayed in touch with Kim over the years and, and she's someone that I really love. And I feel like my most nineties, I don't want me to sound name droppy, but I have a very vivid nineties moment of, of walking into a room and Kim was crying. I think she was pregnant and, and, and said that Kurt Cobain had died. And it, it was just, that, that always stays in my mind as a mm. kind of very 90s moment. But mm. um, but I, mm. I, yeah, it was fun to see bands then. And it was, and it was an exciting time with music shifting. Mm. My story for the Sonic Youth song is, is I just remember sta- my first stage dive was to, um, to that song. <laughs> okay, where was this? What venue? You never forget the venue. Where, where was it? Oh God, I should know. I don't remember where it was. Oh my God, you're the first person I've ever spoken to who can't remember the stage they stage dived off for the first time. I that's know, cr- that's terrible. <laughs> I don't know. an amazing moment from an incredible band who have covered a lot of ground um, and uh, have made, you know, at the core of it, this kind of emotional rebel music, Sonic Youth, uh, unbelievable. Um, you know, and that song, Teenage Riot, such a great moment. That was the song you actually threw yourself off stage to? That was the yes, one? Yes, yes. So I'll, every time I hear that, I'll remember that moment. 
and that feeling. Absolutely <laughs> perfect. <laughs> it's time to focus on the idea of music and film and, and, and the way that you've used it. And, um, and it's one of my favorite parts of your process is that you, you are clearly a music fan and you give music its, its correct place in the overall um, as opposed to something that's just there to, you know, soundtrack explosions. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I wonder what some of, you know, your, your favorite scenes that you've applied music to in, throughout your journey that you've directed, that you've made. What are some of the ones that you really feel proud of? Oh, that's cool. I mean, it's always my favorite part when you get in the edit and you put a song on and it works. And um, I think when when uh, Jason Schwartzman and Kirsten and, and Marie Antoinette walked down the steps to the cure, um, when he becomes king, that that always gives me shivers. And um, and Lost in Translation, having um, my bloody Valentine, that you know, that always, <laughs> I always love that moment. And and just like you're so happy when you get permission to use a song that you love because it's um, you know, you get so you become attached, attached to it. Yeah, you get so yeah. attached to them. The new romantic period clearly influenced, you know, your interpretation of Marie Antoinette and we're about to play Adam and the Ants. Um, <laughs> how did you make the connection between that, between what was going on? I mean, apart from, you know, the way that the band that, you know, Adam and the Ants actually dressed and there was very much, it was, there's a direct fashion connection, but I felt like it was more than that. Yeah, I mean, it was such a, a movement when I was in high school, uh, you know, getting copies of the Face magazine and, you know, um, and just the way that the whole new romantic period of the way people dressed and Vivian Westwood and, and Adam Ant. And yeah, it just made such an impression on me when I was thinking about Marie Antoinette, I thought it would be so fun. You know, they're teenagers and to, to kind of capture that spirit, but just from being a kid and, and thinking that they were, that it was the best. <laughs> it had a fun teenage, ridiculous energy to it. Man, Prince Charming. Right now, this episode, we're at a point where the music that you've chosen turns to family. And through my job, I've been lucky enough to get to know your husband. Uh, Thomas is, of course, the singer in the band Phoenix. And as I've gotten to know him and his bandmates, I, I've realized what you already know. He's such a lovely, charismatic <laughs> yes. uh, man with a very dry sense <laughs> of humor. So I can totally see what you see in him. Uh, how did you guys first meet? Yeah, we'd met on Virgin Suicides. Air did the music and they asked Tomah to sing um, a song on it for the, the end title song. And he played at Sundance. So we met through that, through, thanks to Air. And and Mike Mills was filming, I think, a video for Air and the Phoenix guys were in it. And he told me about these French guys who were playing laser tag in their chateau in Versailles. And I was like, I have to meet these guys. <laughs> so that, that planted a seed. <laughs> but I always thought, you know, that he was cute and I love Phoenix and um, and they let me use the song in Lost in Translation, which um, I love the mm. moment that they're all dancing to their song. And I, I always have a song from theirs in all my movies. It, it's, it's bad luck not to. So I'm, I'm glad that they always <laughs> agree to give me a song. And oh, then, that'd be trouble if they didn't. Yes. That'd be real problems. If that's be really clear. You're being very nice about this. But as soon as the cameras yeah. are off, it's like, excuse me? Yeah. Yeah, right. No, they yeah, they have to. No. Yeah. So I'm lucky that um that I love their music. We're about to play Julian Casablancas, which I sort of feel like there's a reason for this in, in relation to the conversation we're having right now about family. 
Yes, this is a song that was playing during fireworks at our wedding. And we were in, in Italy in this garden at night and fireworks were going off to this song. And then I heard the song again and I said, oh, is this our fireworks song? So I always, it always brings back that, that moment and it's super romantic. <laughs> Is there any such thing as non-fun wedding, yeah. even ones that are not fun become fun in hindsight? It was fun. We were in um, Italy and in, in, in Puglia, in the area where my dad's family's from. And it was small enough to feel like we just were there with our friends and good food. Of course. <laughs> in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be worried if you were ordering in and out. No yeah. disrespect. I'm a fan, but seriously. <laughs> On the Rocks, Sophia, this is a, this is your latest your latest film. Um, and we began sort of setting the scene through Lost in Translation, you know, uh, we how you reunited with Bill and were able to, to bring something together. Uh, if people haven't seen it yet, it's about a father and a daughter played by Bill Murray and Rashida Jones who try to spy on her husband after she suspects he's having an affair. What gave you the spark? What gave you the, the instinct that you wanted to tell this story? Yeah, I had a friend who um, told me the story about her she had suspicions about her husband and her playboy father and her like went and spied on her husband and like were hiding in the bushes. And um, I just thought, uh, oh, I would love to see a father-daughter like mystery caper. It just seems so ridiculous. And, and I love the, just the conversations between generations of, you know, men from our father's generation with, you know, women today, like how we relate and the things we clash on. And I love talking to my dad about, men and women and relationships because they're such a different perspective. So I wanted to do something about, you know, that relationship of a grown daughter with her father and how and how that shaped her and her relationship. And and hopefully something that's fun and light, but but has depth, <laughs> I hope. There was a review that said that there was a, a lightness to it, but it was dealing with some more serious kind of heavy-hearted subject matter. And that's a mm-hmm. really hard balance to strike. I mean, that's in musical terms, the equivalent of kind of, you know, sad banger, you know, a song (laughs) that you write that makes people dance while they're, cry while they're dancing. Yeah. Um, How was that, how was that experience trying to walk the line between the two to keep it so that it's light and it's engaging and it's entertaining, but at the same time addressing this, some of these, these issues that you've, you've tackled in this film. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's always a challenge because I, yeah, I wanted it to feel fun and light, especially in these times, like to have something that was a pleasure to watch, but then hopefully it does connect about substantial things that I had on my mind. And um, I don't know, it's always an experiment. I'm glad that comes through because I, I was worried if it just seemed too too light. Um, so I'm glad that it comes through. And I think Bill has so much heart and Rashida too. They both have depth and humor so that um, that they could really convey that. And um, and, and they're great together. I um, They have great chemistry together, so they're fun to watch. What would you and your dad be like as detectives? That's the question. What kind of what, what kind of experience is that? <laughs> that would be, be fun. He yeah, he's he's always fun. That would be interesting. Um, so we've decided to play a Phoenix song um, as we near the end of our conversation, which is appropriate in so many ways. Um, you know, they've they've got a song obviously on the soundtrack, so keeping the keeping the tradition alive, avoiding the jinx of a non Phoenix related soundtrack. Yeah. Um, why have you chosen Honeymoon? 
that's one of my favorite songs, like my request when Tama sings that. Um, so I just remember listening to that again with my brother driving around LA in the car, listening to it really loud on the stereo over and over. And I just, it's so romantic. It, it kind of made me fall for Tama. <laughs> and isn't it nice to still be a fan? Like when you end up realizing that, some, that you've drawn through energy someone from outside your life into your life, which is, by the way, very real, I think. You manifest through yeah. this kind of love of something that it becomes part of you. Um, but that you can still be able to be a fan of that. of that. And it's not a sacrifice one for the other. Yeah, I know I feel like a little bit like a shameless groupie, but it's, um, yeah, now... When you're married, you don't, there's no, that stops no. being an issue when you become married. Just yes. as an FYI, because you're a very humble person. Yeah. So let's just at least do it. If, this is any, it if any therapy is going to come out of this at all, let's forget the shameless groupie line for the rest of time. <laughs> because no, I'm not really. I know that, that's why I'm saying it, because we know I'm not really. But I, I was always a Phoenix fan. I love those guys. But it, it's fun now. Our, my office is next to his studio where he works. And so, and so I can hear him like working on songs and singing and I was like oh this is my dream come true I, I get to work and like hear Tomas singing in the other room oh that's brilliant every Sunday I go to Hollywood it's worth waiting to see the midnight show and every Sunday Sophia Coppola, it's been great to get to know you over the course of this playlist. It really has. Um, yeah, you know, it's been so nice talking to you. Yeah, you too. I mean, it's it's been a pleasure not getting to know you. And let me qualify that. Because over the course of, of, of me being a fan of what you do, you've been so brilliantly reticent on overexposing your story or making it about you. You seem very respectful to the process of what you're trying to achieve. It's Thank a, you. It's increasingly rare in this day and age for somebody to uh, <laughs> let their work speak for themselves. So, you know, you. you've been very open in this conversation and allowed us just a little insight into, into you know, where you've come from and, and what motivates and inspires you. And it brings us to Elvis Costello. And I, we sort of have a hint as to why this is. This is in some respects tribute to Roman and the way he would put you on to things. Why have you chosen this song? Elvis Costello is um, just one of my all-time favorites. And yeah, my brother playing him to me when I was a kid and driving me to school listening to Elvis Costello and it just there's so many songs and um, albums that I love and it was kind of around the imperial bedroom period when I first knew about him and mm. I always turned to his music and I love the song Poor Napoleon I think it's it's lesser known and I I saw him play at the Olympia in Paris and and requested it on that Wheel of Fortune tour and I was so happy to hear it live and um, and I, I love him and the song. Well, I really enjoyed speaking with you. I hope that you enjoyed it. And thank you so much for your time. I Sophia. did. It feels like a therapy session. <laughs> it was fun to revisit all these moments. It was fun talking to you. I can't lie on this bed anymore. It burns my skin. You can take the truthful things you said to me and fit them on the head of a pin. for life.